This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels with another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Well, only it's like it's one in the morning here in, in Singapore. So it's very late for me now, but I'm really, really very excited about this episode. As am I. Although, we, so we're going to be a, a true international show and cover 12 time zones on this one. <laughs> but who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, today we've got Tim Berry on the, the 3D pod. Tim is the head of manufacturing and supply chain at Launcher. And Launcher is a very disruptive 3D printing space uh, startup that is using additive manufacturing in very demanding, very advanced ways and um, to differentiate themselves from the pack. And I think Tim will tell us all about that. So Tim got started, uh, I think, actually in construction, a bit strange, and started going, then went to automation uh, and then ended up working for SpaceX. And of course, everybody knows if you've done a couple of years at SpaceX, where he was the manager of additive manufacturing, you can do anything you want. Uh, and then <laughs> what uh, Tim wanted to do uh, was become head of manufacturing supply chain launcher. So uh, yeah, well, welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. So first off, like uh, first off, like I think a lot of people will be watching this, and they'll be like, they'll want to get in this new space industry, right? They'll really want to be a part of that revolution, and it's so important for you know, new space and 3D printing, that overlap is so great. So if I was like a young engineer, like a mechanical engineer, an aerospace engineer, how would I get into new space? What's, what do I have to do? Well, when you look for a great engineer um, working in the space business, you're really looking for someone that can uh, problem solve, someone that uh, is not afraid to get their hands dirty and participate in manufacturing. Um, you know, usually aerospace is very demanding. So oftentimes you'll want someone that can um, put in some long hours, whether, you know, hopefully not all the time as some companies do or, uh, you know, sporadically. And so uh, really like a dedication and a, and a knack for problem solving is important. Um, I also think, uh, you know, a lot of people do uh, summer internships uh, or co-ops. And I think that's very important as well, because, you know, you can do a lot in a classroom. But most of the things that I've personally learned about manufacturing um, or supply chain um, or any other processes, uh that or any other field is that um, really getting your hands dirty and actually learning it and working in it is very important. So I would encourage people to prioritize doing internships and co-ops, um, you know, getting out in the field as much as possible, uh, finding a mentor uh, as well that's um, in the current new space industry. You know, I get a lot of um, college students that are reaching out to me, asking me similar questions. You know, I'm interested in rocketry. How do I get into the space business? Um, and, and really, it's just being relentlessly positive and positively relentless and being able to, um, you know, find those opportunities and, and get your hands dirty um, while also being very good at problem solving. <laughs> uh, do you guys look for like top tier schools or certain programs or what are you looking for really? So some programs, uh, some colleges um, do have great rocketry programs like Purdue is a great example. Um, they have an Yay! awesome uh, rocketry program. Oh, do we have a Purdue uh, alumnus on the phone? We do. Well, I'm going to Purdue alumni, and I will testify that their space program is amazing. So. It is, yes, it's great. So there are some schools that have great uh, rocket programs, and you know, uh, pre-exposure to any uh, rocketry, whether hobby or in school, um, is important. Uh, but we've definitely, I mean, throughout my career, I've I've had a lot of engineers that came from colleges that didn't necessarily have a very strong uh, rocket program, uh, but their you know insatiable interest in in devouring all information about rocket uh, rocket engines and rocket science that they can find online has made them, you know, equally as familiar, um, at least technically, as uh, a lot of those students. So we, we will prioritize students that have uh, rocketry experience, especially ones that went to colleges that have programs of note. Um, but that's not, uh, it's not, it's not a, a black or white thing where they have to have it or they don't. Well, we I feel like there's not that many colleges that have, like, Maybe they're an aerospace program of that nature, or has it expanded a lot in the last like 20 years since, since I left college? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen a pretty um, considerable growth of, of uh, student teams and, and um, you know, like uh, rocketry clubs and things like that. We've actually, you know, even had visits from uh, rocketry clubs from Canada 
Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's growing and I think, you know, the new space industry has really helped to jumpstart this focus on uh, space and, and reignited people's interest in space overall. So I think as like kids, you know, grow up and they trickle through the system and get into college, I think we'll only see a continued growth um, of uh, rocketry programs and interest in, in rocket science because people were exposed to it, especially at a younger age. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and uh, one thing that there's a lot of regulations in the states about ITAR and all this kind of stuff. And uh, you know, if I was like a Dutch engineer, could I apply? Could I work for you guys, or is that really difficult? It is difficult. I mean, we have to uh, we have to follow uh, export compliance and, and ITAR rules, um, and so we typically look for uh, you have to be a, a naturalized uh, citizen, green card holder, um, and so that's a government regulation. It's not necessarily a uh, just a launcher regulation. Um, and so, um, you know, if people are interested, I'm, I'm sure there's avenues that they could, you know, attend college here or, um, you know, whatever other traditional pathways people take to getting a, a green card. But um, I would say if they're interested, there is a lot of international uh, space companies as well. Uh, but if there's one particularly of note that's in the U.S., then uh, potentially maybe go- going to college here um, or leveraging um, any opportunities that they had here in order to obtain a uh, a visa to work here would would be a good idea. Okay, okay. And and how did you yourself end up in the space industry? Uh, you kind of took a little bit of a roundabout route, right? Yeah, I just uh, I kind of fell into it, which is a funny thing to say. But um, I uh, you know I, I did used to be in a construction management company, um, and then I went and worked for uh, a smaller automation company. Uh, we were doing uh, working with Kuka robots, uh, automated uh, conveyor belts, and uh, manufacturing equipment, things like that. Um, and then a, f- a friend of mine got a job uh, working at SpaceX, um, and they were looking for uh, leaders for the uh, Falcon 9 program as it was expanding. Um, and so, you know, I, I had had an interest in space since I was a kid. I definitely was aware of SpaceX. Um, and uh, and so when he told me about it, you know, I, I got very excited. And so I went down there and I <laughs> interviewed for the job and I, you know, they called me back the next day and told me that I got it, which I, I hear is a, a rarity, which is a rarity in general for any job, right? Usually you'll, they'll wait a few weeks before they call you back. So they called me back the next day and, and I got the job and I started there and it's been, the rest is history since then. I mean, it's, it was such an amazing ride, all the great programs and um, hardware that I got to work on there. You know, it's, I, I feel very blessed to have had that experience. Is, is SpaceX where you were first formerly exposed to additive manufacturing or had you been, as you said, you've been playing with some stuff before that. Yeah, it was my first exposure to like metal 3D printing, um, like especially of of that scale. Um, And uh, prior to that, I'd had some basic experience doing some minor like FDM and things like that. My friends had uh, like Prusas and things uh, when I was growing up, but um, SpaceX was really my first exposure to metal additive manufacturing. I've never in my life felt older than when you just said that my friends had Prusas when I was growing up. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, okay. <laughs> it's like, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Okay, anyway, so, so, and you worked on a bunch of stuff. And, um, so first up, what is like working on a space company? Well, like just generally, it seems like it's kind of like, it's one part, like, like watch manufacturing, like one part pure adrenaline and kind of a weird mix of the two. So what, what is it actually like? Um, I mean, I treat it as very kin, akin to, you know, depending on your role, you're, you're somewhat of the maestro of an orchestra, right? There's, there's a lot of different uh, things that are going on, you know, all the way from manufacturing through design, testing, um, validation, quality, all those things. And you really have to have the ability to multitask um, and, you know, have a lot in your mind and and make, uh, you know, appropriate decisions very quickly. So I think it's uh, most space companies nowadays are incredibly fast paced. Um, Launcher specifically um, is very fast paced, but we've also focused a lot on uh, work-life balance. You know, a lot of um, a lot of people here have had jobs previously where uh, it was a lot of work and it was tough to balance it with their their personal life. So our CEO, Max uh, Hout, has taken a focus on uh, family first and, and still being able to maintain that work-life balance while, while keeping our aggressive goals. So that's been very nice here at Launcher. Um, but I would say um, it's in general, it's just endlessly interesting to work at a, a space or rocket company, right? Like you, every single day, 
Um, you come in, there's something different to do. There's new things to try, new applications for additive, uh, new engines, upcoming milestones, testing, everything. It's always very busy uh, and there's really never a dull moment. And, and it can be quite challenging. Obviously, aerospace hardware is, is very unforgiving. Uh, space is a one strike and you're out game. So, um, you know, you have to be endlessly paranoid uh, and really making sure that you, you cover all your bases um, and stay on top of it. Yeah. But what, what seems to be the, the, the difficult thing for me is just like, you know, the speed versus quality kind of thing, which is, of course, a problem with all engineering stuff. But especially in space, like one mistake and one con component can cost a rocket, it can cost tens of millions. But again, if you delay it, then yeah, then everything is going to go horribly wrong as well, right? <laughs> then we have no funding. <laughs> yes, the way that you balance it really is is you know focusing on process validation and putting all the processes in place that aren't overly burdensome, right? Like a lot of times, additive parts uh, are somewhat nebulous, especially to uh, people that aren't super familiar with with using the hardware or printing the hardware, um, and so. Oftentimes additive parts, some people think of them as, as guilty until proven innocent. Um, but really, if you have a, a robust process, um, you know, you, you've done your uh, statistical process controls and, and you know, you know, you've done full material suites and qualified your materials and things like that, um, then you're already starting off on a good, good foot knowing that um, you're going to have a good part. Also, a lot of companies nowadays um, have been able to integrate uh, quality assurance softwares into their print platform. So, uh, one great example of this is Velo and their Assure software uh, that can, you know, give you a report at the end of the print and basically tell you how the print went, uh, tell you if there was part protrusions, um, there's a thermal camera in there as well. Um, so I think that like process monitoring really helps with uh, streamlining the, the quality of the hardware. So you, you want to introduce uh, as many quality checks as you need to ensure that you have reliable hardware without overly burdening your system. So. Oftentimes, you'll balance uh, what you do inspection-wise and, and you know, material testing-wise with the testing that you're also going to prove out on the, uh, on the actual test stand. Uh, because you know, throughout my career, I've, I've definitely seen parts where um, you know, we, at least based on the existing uh, acceptance criteria, they were rejectable. But then you know, just to see, you would run them on a test stand, and they would run and perform just fine uh, under all conditions. So I think it's really just uh melding of of your quality controls internally as well as uh what you're going to validate on the test stand and making sure those are are in unison with each other okay okay and, and the test stand thing for the uninitiated is like you literally uh will test out final components like an engine uh like you'll physically test it before using it right or or at least a new model right or actually or individual models as well right yeah so um usually uh, most uh uh, rocket engine manufacturers nowadays um, are doing single unit acceptance, so ATP on on every engine that's made. Um, I think down the line there may be an opportunity to get to more of a, a process validation, like is what used like what is used in uh, automotive, uh, like what Tesla has done very successfully, um, is you know sampling and and focusing on maintaining controls over your processes so that you don't have to do single unit acceptance. Uh, but currently, the, the industry standard is to uh, do an ATP acceptance test procedure um, on each piece of hardware that you manufacture, especially um, the full-up engine assembly at the end. Okay, okay. That, that, that's very, that seems very expensive, <laughs> but, but I think it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, Time-consuming. <laughs> uh, yes, it definitely can, but even more expensive, obviously, is, is having some kind of anomaly uh, on the mission. So it's, um, right. I think, like, there's, there's also, like... Um, you have to be very creative in the aerospace industry where, you know, not necessarily everything that you use has to be uh, specifically manufactured for aerospace, right? Especially if you put it through a full rigorous testing and validation campaign. Um, a lot of times you'll find that components used in other industries, you know, automotive components and things like that, um, you know, function just as well as, as quote unquote space grade hardware, but they don't have the crazy price tag. So um, I think there's a lot of ways to, to be able to save cost and, and kind of dial back the amount that you have to spend on the full build of the engine and also you know test stand components and things like that that might make testing prohibitively expensive okay because all right well first i think now it's a good time to talk a little bit about launcher because we really haven't launcher is a space propulsion company right so you were focusing on the engines right no actually we are a rocket and space oh, manufacturer so ah, okay, okay, okay yeah okay right, explain that badly sorry go on go on yeah <laughs> Yeah, no problem. So um, 
we we do manufacture we currently manufacture a, a rocket engine um, that is codenamed E2 uh, or Engine 2, um, and uh, it is a uh, oxidizer rich closed cycle stage combustion uh, engine. Um, we currently test it at NASA Stennis uh, Space Center in Mississippi. Um, its ultimate purpose is to be used on our uh, a small launch vehicle, aka rocket that we're developing, uh, that's known as uh, Light, uh, which will carry uh, our orbiter spacecraft, which is the third stage, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment, um, to orbit uh, from the ground using a single E2 engine. Um, so far, in terms of progress on E2, uh, we have tested the uh, combustion chamber, which occurred earlier in May, uh, our most recent test anyways. Uh, and then um, just as, just recently in September, we tested the, the turbo pump, so the other, the other half of the engine essentially, um, at NASA Stennis. And through testing, we actually proved that uh, we've manufactured the highest performance kerosene chamber and turbo pump ever made in the U.S. Um, and so the next step for us is going to be uh, focusing on integration of the engine and the turbo pump together and then doing an integrated test uh, in Q1 of next year. Um, Launcher Light is slated to fly for the first time in 2024. That's our target right now. So Launcher Light is a three-stage rocket. Now, the third stage of the rocket is actually Orbiter, which is our uh, spacecraft that we use as a orbital transfer vehicle and hosted payload platform. So what our CEO Max realized early on was that um, you know we could build flight heritage and, and get revenue and start learning with, with Orbiter um, a lot sooner if we flew it as a transfer vehicle on SpaceX Rideshare. So now we, uh, that's the primary application that we've developed it for, and, and our first mission is actually coming up in December. So, so actually, but yeah, you, you guys talk a lot about being like a ride-sharing platform for CubeSats and stuff like that. Is that, is that kind of like where it's going, or do you also want to do that, or can I ever buy a launcher rocket, or is that, the, you know, for now you guys are considering just being this ride-share kind of thing? Um, I mean, we do, we can do a various, like a wide array of missions with Orbiter. So we do um, like orbital transfers, which is basically uh, SpaceX ride-share drops you off in sun-synchronous orbit, and if that's not your intended orbit, um, then we separate from there and we take you to whatever final orbit you want to go to. So that's the orbital transfer part of it. Um, you, pretty uniquely, we can also fly orbiter in hosted payload configuration, which means um, on the same mission, we can have CubeSats that are deploying out of you know, a typical dispenser, and then we could also have some payloads uh, that are staying with us for the duration of the mission, uh, where we are providing them power, telemetry, propulsion, uh, communications, basically it's it's a satellite bus uh, that they need to stay up there. So Orbiter also recently we announced uh, can be used in uh, for uh, space junk cleanup or orbital debris cleanup as well. So it's got a number of applications that we can use it for. Um, and, you know, since the cost of, of a rideshare mission on Falcon 9 uh, is so competitive, we, we like to offer that option to our customers if they can use it. The only time anyone should be really buying a rocket launch um, is when they, you know, the schedule doesn't work for the ride chair, like they need to launch outside of when there's a ride chair mission, or uh, if they can't reach their intended orbit, um, you know, from ride chair, from sun synchronous, and they need to go directly from the ground. So, uh, our obviously a launch vehicle, uh, a, a, a single rocket launch is, is at a premium versus uh, doing a rideshare mission. And so our focus is really on offering our customers as many options for access to space as possible, and then working with them to fit it into their schedule, budget, uh, and their orbital constraints. Because I like the CubeSat focus. It used to be that CubeSats was like what your college or your ambitious college would make a CubeSat, right? But of course, yeah. with miniaturization and, and more computing power, you know, these CubeSats are going to get more and more powerful all the time, right? Yes, absolutely. Funny enough, we actually do have some colleges flying on our first mission um, that have made some CubeSats and some private customers as well. So I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. The the density of complexity that has uh, you know evolved over time with electrical components, um, solar cell efficiency, uh, a lot of the things that have enabled the miniaturization of of these large payloads um, have have really helped to to foster the burgeoning CubeSat industry, and then. Um, you know, orbital transfer vehicles and, and uh, customer integrators or aggregators uh, such as us have really helped to make space less um, or more accessible for 
colleges and, and smaller uh, enterprises and things like that where they can't you know afford the cost of a dedicated launch, um, but this has enabled them to get their payload up anyways. Yeah, but of course, obviously, if we fast forward 10 years, we would expect like, you know, really mega capable satellites to have that CubeSat like format, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's always a limitation um, in terms of uh, power, especially like, you know, you can only carry such a big solar array or amount of cells on a CubeSat. So, um, you know, as the miniaturization of, of electronics continues and and you can continue and you can make things smaller and smaller to fit into smaller spaces, you also have to be cognizant of the power generation. So um, I think that's that's one constraint of making uh, some things very tiny. And then also the other constraint would be uh, power storage. So the size of the batteries uh, that you can have, unless there's some groundbreaking, some some breakthrough in, in battery technology where they become incredibly small and light, um, you're still going to have that as a constraint for a, a satellite. It's coming. Diamond batteries. No. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Nuclear powered satellites. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> Russians are really good at doing that. <laughs> yeah. Power generation in space also is currently, um, from, for most companies, is currently very expensive as well. So most people are buying uh, multi-junction space cells uh, that are gaussium arsenide. They're grown in a lab um, and they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for these arrays. Um, we've taken a different approach. So we use silicone-based uh, IBC terrestrial cells, um, which we are aware function well uh, in space. So um, that's helped us to keep costs low on our power generation in orbit. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, the general density of everything and mass of everything is, of course, like super important, like from the swap and the, and the, the radio frequency arrays to the batteries, to everything needs to be mega optimized for, for mass, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we we do will lightweight components where where needed. Um, will um, you know? We've focused on using our propellant tanks. Uh, it's it's kind of counterintuitive. They actually only weigh five kilograms, um, and so whenever people pick them up, they're they're pretty surprised by how light they are. Um, and uh, you know, that's because we we use titan We opted to use titanium uh, so that we could thin out the wall while still maintaining a three x burst safety factor. So I think that's you know where alloy selection and choosing things that are very strong and lightweight uh, without breaking the bank is important um, on spacecraft. Because every kilogram, um, you know, depending on the launch vehicle, right, every kilogram could be worth tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. But, th- but that was like, like that, that's what we love about 3D printing because usually we're really expensive. But in space, even now, it's like 10K a kilo or whatever. It's easy, kind of like a kind of rule of thumb kind of thing. And yeah, you can then easily see how any part will pay itself back in powder bed fusion very, very quickly um, uh, by just reducing like 30, 40%, which is quite easy for us to do. So, you know, is that the reason you're doing additive? Because there's there's other reasons, right? There's part integration, there's a mass again, but then there's also just optimized structures. What are the, the main drivers for the adoption of additive in, in new space? Because it's, it's one of the biggest things driving growth in 3D printing. So we're really curious about that. Absolutely. So in typical traditional aerospace, there's uh, a lot of processes that depend, that rely heavily on, on expensive and long lead tooling. Um, even you go to like investment casting, uh, it requires molds and, and you know, I've, I, I am aware that a lot of investment casting houses, you know, they're, they're grinding out defects on almost every single part. Um, so it's, it can be a very expensive process. It's not something that's easy to, uh, to turn over. It's not something that's easy to iterate with. Obviously, if you want to change uh, a part significantly, you don't want to then have to wait six months and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in NRE and tool costs uh, just to change over to it. So I think first and foremost, what I always say is that um, the printer doesn't care what it prints, uh, so it can print a rocket engine one one day, and then the next day it could print a spacecraft uh, engine, and then the next day it could print some spring casings or anything like that. So I think the versatility of additive is is one of the primary drivers of why uh, it's being so heavily adopted in the space industry, where rapid iteration is basically make or break for a company, right? Um, so using additive, for example, has allowed us to go from start of a print to testing uh, on our test stand of our orbiter engine um, in only one week. So I think that's that's where the versatility comes in handy. Uh, the next thing is the density of complexity that you get with additive and particularly powder bed fusion. Um, you know, you can consolidate a lot of components together. You can 
do cool things like uh, seed flanging where you print directly onto another part so that you don't have to EDM it off the plate later um, and so that you can consolidate them together that way. Uh, you can uh, you know, consolidate a number of different parts together. Um, you can incorporate different things into the part. So I think the density of complexity is another reason why additive, particularly powder bed fusion, has really taken off um, for companies. Uh, and then finally, just the variability with, with alloys, right? Some printers, uh, such as our EOS M300, you can, even aside from the versatility of printing different geometries, you can also change between materials in only about a day. So you even get that added benefit of being able to, you know, only have one asset that manufactures a wide array of components in, you know, a wide array of alloys as well. Yeah, and if we're looking at things like parts consolidation, right, and also just functional integration, where we're saying, you know, it's a parts consolidation is we're taking eighty parts and making three of them, and, and functional integration is a radar antenna and it's also a casing or whatever, or also a battery, right? Are these things that are difficult to design for in such a complex system? Because it would seem to be yeah, very difficult to figure out where we can get these gains from, right? It's not necessarily difficult to design for. Um, a lot of uh, our mantra as a company is is to, in our case, is design for the tools we have. So every uh, geometry or new design that we come out with, um, or uh, we we're automatically looking at how do we consolidate these various parts together, um, or you know the design was an integrated from the beginning. So whereas you'd have a traditional engine from from Another manufacturer that might be 10 different pieces with, uh, you know, nine of them in the injector and then the chamber separately or the chambers multiple pieces. We would just look at that from inception and say, okay, this should just be two pieces or one piece together and let's go and design it that way. So we've had the benefit of really designing that um, with functional integration in mind and part consolidation in mind from, from the beginning. Because, yeah, I thought, I read this article at one point about flow, this whole idea of, like, people should consider, like, an, uh, an object not as a discrete, you know, or a collection of assemblies, but really as, like, something that energy flows through it. It was really esoteric, and it resonated with some people, but I'm wondering, are you guys really thinking like that, like, you know, more holistically about the entire thing, rather than breaking it down in its constituents' parts, as engineers were taught for a long time? I mean, we, we definitely look at the entire system whenever we do like a design review or anything, and we'll look at opportunities to consolidate parts together. Um, I think uh, one great example is uh, our engine uses an integrated uh, inducer and, and impeller combination, which I haven't seen out in the market previously. Usually those are two independent parts. Um, so anywhere that it really makes sense to us as we're going through design reviews, um, we typically have additive folks sitting in on those and commenting on where opportunities to consolidate the parts uh, together would be or where we could, um, you know, make one part multi-purpose by adding a few features to it or anything like that. So I think it's really something that we typically capture in the design reviews. I haven't necessarily heard the approach of, of you know, thinking of something that energy goes through, but we've done it more in a utilitarian way of just looking at a full system and picking out different aspects of it that we could integrate together. Yeah, darn. Uh, but but uh, but one thing that the, the, very uh, no uh, no, ph no philosophical here. <laughs> <laughs> but but one thing I think I think it's interesting this design review thing. You make it sound like a really collaborative process. And what I really hear from a lot of companies, we heard this from Marcus at Domain, and we heard this from a couple other people as well, is that like you know designing for additive is really a team sport where you have all the different flavors of engineers, all the different engineers from different systems all sitting together. Is that your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. I think it is immensely important that the manufacturing team, additive or otherwise, is involved from Jump Street with a design, right? Because a lot of times at a lot of companies, you're pretty much just getting a design like pitched over the fence, like here, go figure out how to make it now when, um, and then waiting for feedback and having to incorporate it later. Whereas getting the manufacturing team involved early to say, yes, we can make this or making these changes would make this a lot easier to manufacture is super important. So I think, you know, at Launcher, we, we really focus on, uh, you know, not having walls and, and people collaborating uh, together, especially in the design phase. So, so a great example is like, is that inducer impeller combination, but just putting the overall model up on the screen and everybody looks at it. And then, you know, the additive folks in the room speak up and say, Hey, those two parts right there, I see you have a flange. We could actually print those together. Um, and so them helping to helping the design engineers to understand those opportunities for integration and where additive can can lend some additional benefit, um, but also 
the design engineers flowing back uh, requirements uh, to the additive people so that they can consider those when they're proposing uh, these opportunities. So I, I think the collaboration is, is extremely important. Um, also, uh, I think that design for additive is something that needs to die. Uh, I don't think yes, that they're... Yeah, we all agree design on that. Design for manufacturing is basically saying, you know, the, the printers aren't good enough yet. So I think it's something that needs to die. I think that you shouldn't have to make compromises, right? Velo and, and EOS, I know, are, are doing a lot of things with um, printing support free and and not having these crazy constraints of like, you know, having to put angles where you don't want them and things like that and or cram something completely full of support. So I think design for additive manufacturing is something that, that needs to die. And uh, a way that can kind of help it die is is to inform the design engineers so that they make those decisions up, you know, some decisions up front, but also continuing to push on the platform manufacturers to make them better and smarter so that you don't have to make those compromises. No, I think that's a really good approach. I mean, yeah. yeah, to me, design. I've said this before. I think uh, here as well. It's kind of like asking people to learn Italian before they before you let them eat pizza. You know, it's just it just strikes me as being completely unnecessary. You know, so I think that's a good point. Um, but okay, so if we're we're talking about how much of your well, I don't know how, if you can say this really, but how much is uh, or, or out of the total of parts you make, how many parts are three D printed, or how much or, or what kind of parts are three D printed? I don't know what you're what you're comfortable saying. Yeah, no, um, it's, uh, I would say probably 70 to 80% of our hardware is, is manufactured using additive. Um, we print everything from uh, the chambers for our orbiter, our, our orbit raising engine on our orbiter spacecraft. Uh, we do a lot of turbo, uh, turbo machinery and turbo pump components for the E2 engine. Um, the thrust structure on the inside of, of orbiter is 3D printed out of titanium. Um, so... That's, that's another aspect. And then it's surrounded by eight uh, 3D printed tanks that are made out of titanium uh, as well. So anything that, that makes sense to print, um, you know, there's some things that you can manufacture from, from billet and they're a lot more accurate. And so that's the way that you're going to do it, especially if it's like a simple bracket or something like that. Um, but the beauty, again, of having the, the additive machines is that if you're overcapacitized on your uh, machine shop, you can't actually just go over and print some brackets if you really need to. So... I think like, you know, our, everything that the, the vast majority of things that we design, um, you know, we look at those opportunities to integrate them together and make them better. And then we, we typically go the way of printing them. Okay. Okay. And is, is 3D printing like kind of infectious? Is it like, you know, we started with a combustion chamber then we did this thing and this thing and it kind of goes like that, like, like bit by bit or. I think it was, you know, there was initial application, there's initial applications for a company where they know that they need to to um, bring in the, the printer print platforms. And then once you have the print platforms in, like I said, our mantra has been designed for the tools we have. So, you know, no one, no one at Launcher would say, I made this great part and it's gonna be a casting, right? Like we would always just say, uh, we baseline additive for everything. And we even, like a great example is our propellant tank. It fits perfectly within the build volume uh, of our TIE 6.4 Sapphire printer. So it's really just, making things fit into the tools that we have so that we don't have to go out and either make something out of house or so we don't have to buy a really expensive machine just for a single application. I'm so happy that you guys baseline with additive. That makes me so happy because otherwise like, <laughs> I'm always in my life is like trying to tell people, you know, we can make your part, but it's more expensive and, and really different and weird. And, and you guys are just like added like natively additive or something like that. That just really makes me very happy. Absolutely. I mean, even if you look at investment casting, I've seen some studies that show like 30% increase in mechanical properties for uh, printed hardware. Um, I've also, you know, I've been around foundries in the past and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, they can end up with a lot of rework that has to happen and there's a lot of intensive inspections and things like that. So I genuinely think that the large format printers are going to make uh, foundries obsolete. I think that for a lot of things they could, or for a lot of a come out, and uh, for a lot of high value components, right? I don't know about obsolete, but I think like uh, decidedly less profitable, definitely. I think uh, for a lot yeah, of sorry, objects. I, I should say very complex castings and things like that. Obviously, pots and pans uh, probably make more sense to still do sand casting or or anything like that. But but aerospace components, you know, I think generally will will all move to um, additive. Yeah, I always say that the only person that's, that doesn't believe in additive is Warren Buffett, you know, because he owns like precision cast parts. Um, but uh, but um, but um, the thing to me is that, that, that 
in that kind of like world where you're printing all these parts and you're printing all these things, like how difficult is it for you guys to select new technologies or look at new technologies? Or is it actually easy because there's not a lot out there that actually works? Uh, in terms of like additive methods? Yeah, sure, sure. Or, or yeah, alternatives, yeah. right? I mean, I mean yeah. uh, there's, I mean, between selecting for additive methods, like I guess a f- there's a few things that are at play with additive methods. Like we'll look at the feature resolution that we need, the size, um, you know, obviously there's some parts that are just too big, even for current uh, additive mini or power bed fusion print uh, build volumes. Um, and, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll explore a few, we've explored a few other applications for that. And we've looked at some things for uh, cladding applications, um, you know, using DED or cold spray for cladding applications and things like that. So we've, we definitely entertain trying a few different additive methods, but um, in terms of like overall hardware, we basically, like I said, about 70, 80% is printed. And then that other 20%, we really just look at the cheapest, easiest way to make it, right? Like if we don't have to, um, some people will uh, machine plates, like a, a bracket plate or something from billet when they could have just taken sheet metal and press breaked it into the right um, shape. So for me personally, most, you know, a lot of things end up in the printer, but then the things that don't or don't make sense to, uh, I'll just kind of sl- we'll just kind of slot them into uh, where they go and what the cheapest, easiest way is to manufacture it. I think actually, by the way, now I'm, think- I'm thinking about it. Like, it's actually incredible how the role that NASA and NASA JPL played in additive, because one specific thing they did, apart from doing a lot of pushing of additive for a long time, was they published a bunch of papers uh, about, like, you know, the, for example, showing this parts consolidation. You quoted this number before uh, about the, the the casting and the performance of cast versus additive. A lot of that information came from NASA, where they're really being very open and saying, "Hey, in the baby bantam." I quoted it myself without realizing earlier when I said there's 80 parts that consolidated into the three. I think that was on the BDB Bantam or one of the projects they did earlier. So I really think that NASA did a great job of, of showcasing everybody like, hey, look, additive works. Additive is profitable or, or, or you know, it's, it's a doable technology, not just some pie-in-the-sky thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, we, we get a ton of benefit out of, um, you know, coordinating and, and, and talking to the folks at NASA. Their additive manufacturing uh, people are are the best in the world. And, you know, we've, we've gotten a lot of benefit out of, out of discussing applications with them, um, heat treating methodologies, um, you know, Paul, Paul Gradle and, and some others just recently came out with a book, Metal Additive Manufacturing for Propulsion Applications, which I would a million percent recommend to, to anyone who's trying to do additive um, in aerospace in general. Uh, it doesn't just have to be propulsion applications. I think the book is, uh, was very enlightening uh, overall. So I think NASA has done an amazing job of being great proponents for additive. Um, and I think, you know, the onus is is on the rest of us to kind of pick up the baton and, and make sure that uh, it's prioritized in our businesses and, and the value is understood in our businesses, but also, you know, taking any opportunities we can to teach the next generation about how great additive is. Yeah, that's great. And again, we have Paul Gradle on the podcast is coming up, and I'm a huge fan of that, that paper he wrote, like also recently, the what is it, the, the material selection or the process selection? Robust metal additive manufacturing that process one. selection and development of aerospace components. That yeah. one is amazing. <laughs> it is, actually. Yeah, it's great. So I, I think generally, like, the folks at NASA have been, you know, amazing for us and, and amazing for the additive industry in general. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. Uh, and so you guys, okay, so you mentioned there's a little DED in the mix, but you guys are really powder bed fusion focused. And then uh, is that a, you know, did you try other technologies like every, like binder jet? I know it sounds a bit stupid, but, you know, did you try other stuff or is it, is it really, or did you really very quickly settle on powder bed? Because it's the only one thing that can get you like this feature size you talked about, the resolution, that kind of thing. Yeah, powder bed is really, um, is really the primary our primary additive method just because it does get us the appropriate feature size resolution um you know pro- processing printing time um things like that and it's very well understood uh uh from me and my team as well so a lot of us have great familiarity with standing up you know incredibly high volume additive manufacturing lines and so we've really hashed out all the uh ins and outs and the the things that you need to do to uh, do serial production in powder bed fusion. And so it's, it's a ready go-to for us. We already know how to do it. We know how to stand it up. We know how to do it fast and we know how to do it cheap. Um, that said, uh, there are some things that powder bed just can't do based on the, the build volume size or, or the specific application. So, you know, we've, uh, we're definitely exploring 
um, some other complementary additive methods, uh, basically combining two different methods together um, to produce uh, the hardware. Uh, in terms of binder jetting, we haven't done uh, any binder jetting. Um, I'm, I don't have a, a big background in binder jetting, uh, but anything that you know, a lot of the post-processing that's required with binder jetting and, and, you know, the feature resolution that you can get, I think is just not there for a lot of the components that we manufacture. Yeah, no, it's not there, but it's it's totally there for like heat sinks and nozzles and stuff like that. Yeah. I love binder yeah. jet for nozzles, man. Uh, really, really do. So anyway, so, um, uh, so it's interesting, like the, you said, the combination of methods. I, I really think that because the machine vendors were so long focused on just one technology, that we really don't appreciate this. Imagine making like using like for example like a Meltio kind of DED technology for a part, right? Then a near net shape part that you finish with a, a machining, and then making a kind of uh, let's say a powder bed fusion like nozzle uh, on that, that that bigger part, uh, maybe even some binder jet kind of plates to mount that nozzle, something like that. The, the, this combination to me sounds so, especially from a cost perspective, especially using all these technologies for the geometries that they're really good at. That to me is is a really very exciting area, especially like for example, a thing like Meltier or the DD technology. You can mix materials very easily. You can come up with very exotic kind of quasi alloy things, you know, so that which you can't do with powder bed, but in powder bed you could do lattices. So I think that's a really exciting area. Yeah, I would agree with you hundred percent. I think um, com the combination of additive methods, whether it's printing apart um, and you know cladding it with with cold spray or DED, uh, another one would be um, you know printing apart in powder bed and then putting it in a DED machine and, and using DED to print you know a larger structure onto it. Uh, or doing it vice versa, printing a big DED part and then using it effectively as your build plate in your powder bed fusion printer, um, what, what we would call seed flanging, uh, and then, or seed part, I guess, in that case, um, and then printing directly on top of it. I think we've, I think the industry in general has like barely scratched the surface of what we can do with consolidating different additive methods together. Yeah, totally. I think it's really exciting. I think, and also just if you're looking at stuff like ceramics and all these really, really kind of, uh, and the properties you want to get and just the cost of these different materials, it just doesn't make sense a lot of time to make this whole part out of one thing. Um, so you've mentioned a little bit, you mentioned Velo, you mentioned AOS. I know you, you also work with AMCM, which is like the custom machine builder of AOS. Do you have any other technologies you can talk about or, or companies or that kind of thing? Those are the primary, um, uh, those are the primary vendors that we use right now um, uh, for our printing platforms. Um, we have two Velo Sapphire uh, printers. So one of them is an Inconel, one of them is in Titanium. And then we have an M300 printer uh, on site currently uh, that does three any three different materials. And then uh, our chambers are currently printed on the AMCM M4K uh, and C18150. So those are the primary uh, additive technologies and vendors that we work with currently. So the, 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 the AMCM is copper, right? Or what was the material? Or Yeah, so we do, uh, we actually, it's, it's pretty unique. We print our chamber uh, in C18150, uh, which is an industrial copper. It's copper chromium zirconium. Um, and comparatively with uh, GR Cop, you know, which is, can be on the order of $250, $300 a kilogram, I guess, last I checked. Um, you know, you can get C18150 on the order of $50 to $70, somewhere in there. So it's about a fifth of the cost um, of GR Cop. And so we, we use uh, C18150 has worked really well for us. I know there's obviously applications out there where um, the strength and conductivity that you get with GR Cop is required. But um, so far, we've been able to make uh, C18150 work really well. Um, and one of the primary reasons for that uh, is because unlike most other, all other rocket companies that, that we're aware of, uh, we actually use liquid oxygen for the regenerative cooling in the nozzle instead of using uh, fuel. And so that gives us the benefit of not having to do any uh, film cooling of any kind. So we're not dumping, you know, five to 10% of our propellant overboard uh, like some other uh, engines are. Uh, and also that helps to keep the, the hot wall cool. Um, and, uh, and the heat treating method that we use with it still gives us great uh, conductivity up to around 90%. Okay, that's, that's I think that's really surprising. It's the surprising, most surprising thing I've heard so far because I thought everyone was doing the GR Cop Forty Two because it was like specifically designed to make this, or like the eighty one, you know, or these other kind of more exotic uh, materials because they were specifically designed for that purpose, right? So it's interesting to see that cost is such a big driver for you. Yes, absolutely, and you know, I've I've always uh, you know I've been quoted as saying, and I guess this is one of my primary quotes now, but um, 
you know, I would make a rocket out of paper mache if I could fly it reliably, right? So right. you should use the, the cheapest thing that works. And for our specific application, uh, we've made C18 150s work just, just fine for us. So that's helped us to save, um, you know, save a lot on cost. Uh, I know the supply chain is, is, is not as bad as it used to be, but it's getting better for GR COP. So, uh, but C18 150 is, is used in a lot of industries. So it's, it's pretty readily available for us. Yeah, is is cost one of the main advantages that you guys are bringing to the market here in terms of being able to produce a rocket at a even more cost-effective manner than what other companies are currently doing? Yes, absolutely. I would say that cost and capability are the selling points of launcher. So we're focusing on the lowest possible price uh, for access to space, um, you know, whether uh, through our, our light launch vehicle, which, um, you know, can leverage the E2 engine, which again is by, by our calculations for the chamber and the turbo pump are the highest performance kerosene uh, chamber and turbo pump ever made in the US. And what that translates into, along with not having to do any fuel, any film cooling, because we use uh, liquid oxygen for regenerative cooling, um, is that you can uh, you, you can carry a lot more payload and you don't have to carry as much propellant because we're, we're being a lot more efficient with the propellant. So that helps us to keep costs down by being able to carry uh, more payload um, for effectively less propellant. Um, and also, the, since the E2 turbo pump, kerosene turbo pump is so efficient, um, we, the inlet pressure for it um, is a lot lower than, than other rockets. So that means that you can actually thin out the rocket and the propellant tanks don't need to be um, quite as thick. So they're even lighter. So basically all those things are adding up to saved propellant mass, uh, which basically results in more payload mass. So that's how we've been able to, um, that's our approach to uh, the launch vehicle, keeping costs down. And then on Orbiter, we launch on Rideshare, which is you know incredibly cheap. It's effectively the cheapest way to get to space. Um, and also Orbiter has the largest, uh, one, of the, one of the largest payload plates and payload areas and payload capacity of any OTV, while also having um, one of the highest Delta V capability as well, uh, because we use our propellant tanks for multiple different purposes, and we're able to carry so much propellant. So we have we focused a lot on high performance and, and capabilities. Um, and then on the other side for manufacturing component selection, we use a lot of um, you know automotive components, uh, commercially available off-the-shelf components. Um, and really, yes, cost is, is, is definitely a huge driver for us. One thing is you can make, for us, you make really large parts. So I think for the car people, we wouldn't really be making large parts. But for you, us, you really make giant, really large parts. But we often say that, that, that and so then if you have a silicon machine or something like that, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot less cost in the handling and stuff like that. But are you really missing a lot of uh, you know, like automation tools? Like, would you like, like, kind of like automated de-stressing and automated, uh, you know, that automatically goes into a surface treatment thing without you having to handle the part? Is that kind of thing that you're looking for? I think that's where the industry will go eventually. I think we have a lot more optimization to do before then. You know, um, I think a lot of us... Uh, throughout our careers have, have abided by um, Elon's first principles algorithm. Um, it's a multi-step algorithm and the last step of it is automation. And a lot of people I think work themselves uh, through the algorithm backwards, right? They start with automation and then eventually figure out that they can delete the process that they automated. So I think, you know, the industry needs to continue to focus on um, optimization before we eventually try to automate everything. But I do think that it needs to move towards um, you know, things like automated turnovers. Um, so like robots that communicate with the machines and are able to extract the parts and bring them to their different stations for uh, depowdering, heat treating, chemical processing, things like that. So I think automation is where we need to get eventually, but I, I still think we have a lot of optimization and growth to do before we get there. And so is there anything you're looking for from the additive industry where you think like, is it software or, is there, is there or a material or a printer? What would you really like to see uh, that could really help you? One thing that is missing in terms of alloys, I think, is a low-cost refractory alloy because, you know, most, a lot of companies that need refractories, they're typically using uh, C103, a niobium alloy, uh, which can be thousands of dollars per kilogram. So I think something that would really help, um, you know, feedstock manufacturers should focus on uh, making low-cost refractory materials that can be used for uncooled applications, whether chambers or nozzles or things like that. Um, also, you know, I think I, I really like the trend of printers getting bigger, 
you know, double the size for not double the cost and, and you know, continuing to get more productivity um, for less of a, a capital investment. So a higher productivity to capital investment ratio. So I want to see that trend continue. And I, I think, you know, most of the large platform manufacturers have, have really picked up the baton and, and are pushing forward with, with some of those large printers. So I, th- I think that's where the trend that needs to continue because as the printers get bigger and faster and they can produce more, but they're not you know, equally as expensive, they don't scale up one-to-one uh, in terms of expense, um, it'll continue to make additive uh, more applicable to wider sectors. Yeah, it's interesting. I was about to say, like, but we can print tungsten. I'm like, uh, but probably it's not tungsten. It's not what you want. <laughs> well, you, you can print tungsten. Uh, it, it definitely is susceptible to, to cracking, but I've heard some interesting things uh, about some com- combination alloys with, with tungsten that make it a lot easier to print. And it's also very heavy, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't seem really ideal. And, and I think, um, and you guys as a company, I mean, I think it seems really quite clear that additive is really important to you as a, as a business, right? And, and you know, you're seeing some com- companies that are, uh, you know, outsourcing part of this. You guys are doing this in-house. Other people are developing their own technologies, kind of, or doing a lot of, like, work on the machines and stuff. Other people are saying that additive is not that important. Um, is it like, you know, how are you going to deploy this key advantage? Is, is it about like using them, like you mentioned before, using the machines better or, or is, it, is it more than that? I think it's it's continuing to increase the productivity and, and quality that we get out of the machines, I think is, is the way that we'll continue to attack it. Um, adding additional, um, you know, machine capacity, uh, optimizing the way that humans interact, that our people and employees interact with the machines. Um, and making them faster. I think it's just taking the automotive, you know, serial production line approach um, to additive once we are out of the development phase and more into a uh, like production phase with the hardware that we make. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. And uh, and just generally, uh, yeah, Tim, what do you hope to achieve in the next couple of years? Where, where do you hope to go? Oh, <laughs> there's a lot. So, uh, you know, in 20, we're, we're excited for our launch vehicle, uh, you know, flying for the first time in 2024. E2 is such an amazing engine. We, I think we're all excited to see it, um, you know, fly and, and, and see it perform. Um, Orbiter, you know, we're, we're doing, we have three missions scheduled for next year. I think that'll continue to scale up, uh, you know, 10, you know, tens of missions in the years that follow. So we're really excited to see, see um, you know, our launch vehicle come, come to life and fly. Um, continue to see more applications for Orbiter. We've already uncovered so many uh, great applications for Orbiter, and we already have so much customer interest and market interest, um, you know, it's, and, and government interest. It's really been amazing. So I'm excited to just continue, um, you know, developing and making our hardware better and then looking to uh, scale up uh, over the next few years. Okay. Hey, Tim, thank you so much for being here. I thought this was fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, Max, thank you for being here as well. Yeah, no, it's great to see metal really being used to its utmost uh, degree and additive. Thank you, George. And uh, thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, enjoy your day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.